You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Amen. Please be seated. Let's turn to Isaiah. We're uh, looking at Isaiah 44. We're coming in at the end of the chapter at verse 24. It's on page 730 of the Pew Bible. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. There is a a real problem with the verses that we're going to look at, we're going to go on to look at, because uh, in the previous chapters of Isaiah, God has been really strong in condemning idolatry. Yet in these verses, he's going to speak, he does speak of a king called Cyrus as the anointed and as my shepherd. And here's the problem. Cyrus was an idolater, big idolater. So imagine you're in Israel at this time, or you're in exile. You've already got enough problems in that your city, Jerusalem, has been captured. Your temple is being destroyed. Your leaders have been taken away. And then your prophet comes and tells you this happened because of your idolatry. And he then says, and God says, this idolater is my servant. It must have been really, really confusing. And I think an awful lot of us live in a very simplistic world, which basically goes like this. Good people do good things and get good things. Bad people do bad things and get bad things. And bad things happen to good people, then we know that the, it's, it's, it's fine, really. Just round the corner, everything will work out. But what if it doesn't? And what if a good person dies? And what if a bad person is put in charge. Barry Webb says this, God may disapprove of idolatry and yet use an idolater. The fact that he uses someone in a specific way does not mean that he approves of their lifestyle. We should neither stand in judgment on God's actions nor draw wrong conclusions from them, but we should praise him for his sovereignty. I love that. I love that because it means that the people who maybe even intend to do you harm people who hate God, people who despise His Word. They may even be in authority, and yet God in His sovereignty can still and does still use them. And again, what Isaiah does is what we should always do, whatever our personal circumstances, is turn away from viewing ourselves, making our own plans, getting our own understanding and instead turn to who God actually is. And in the verses that we're going to look at, he gives three great assurances. It is, um, one man describes it in this way, the positive and joyous revelation of the true God. Because sometimes it is true that God does things or permits things which seem incredibly threatening to us. And yet, this is what the Lord says. That's what we begin with. This is what the Lord says. 
Listen. Whatever your circumstances, listen. This is what the Lord says. Firstly, the first great assurance. He says, I am your redeemer, the maker of all things. Now, this is really, I find this fascinating. I don't know what you think of John Calvin, if you know about John Calvin. Um, Some of you will know about him. You know, when a preacher quotes Calvin, that's a sign he's sound. Uh, You may know nothing about Calvin, but that's, you think, oh, he's quoting him because it sounds a whole lot better than quoting Joe Bloggs or David Robertson or somebody. Um, Calvin, you know, was a good guy. But then there are other people who go, yeah, but Calvin, he he was kind of very austere, you know, black coat. He was goth before the goths. You know, he was black coat and the hat and the beard and, and um, stone you as soon as look at you. Uh, that kind of thing. That, that's what they needed in those days. Well, it's an image. And like all images, it's a caricature. And it's generally false. Because Calvin, in talking about this, he says this, which I think is amazing. Now, listen to this carefully. He says, Isaiah begins by praising the goodness and fatherly kindness with which God has embraced his church and which he intends to exercise until the end. For the declaration of his, that is God's power and strength, would have little influence on us if he did not approach us and assure to us of his kindness. We ought not therefore to begin with the majesty of God, nor to ascend so high lest we be thrown down. But we ought to embrace his goodness by which he gently invites us to himself. Now, Calvin taught, as the Bible does, the glory and the absolute majesty of God. But, you know, sometimes we can do things in a way that we exalt and lift God where he should be. But then we ourselves, because we don't take in the whole picture, he becomes someone who is austere and away from us. And in this wonderful passage, God comes to his people, and he doesn't lambast them for their sins. And he doesn't exalt his own holiness and righteousness. It's there. It's taught. It's there. But it's this very um, gentle thing. He has said to them, this is what's happened. Look, you've created, if you go back in the chapter, you've created these false gods. And he's ridiculed idolatry, and he's ridiculed... What, what has happened? And then he comes to his people, and you would just imagine it. You would imagine, you know, um, if a preacher was preaching here and you're saying, this is what you've done wrong, this is what you've done wrong, this is what you've done wrong, and then it comes to the application, you would expect the preacher almost to go, now get on your knees and repent. And perhaps, just perhaps, God might, you know, you're all doomed. But God comes through Isaiah And as Calvin says, he gently invites us to himself. And he says two things. One is that he's the redeemer who formed you in the womb. The redeemer in that context, in that culture, was the next of kin who pledges to take every burden from you. We're we're used to the idea of redeemer as a, a religious concept. We don't use it very much, and it's not used in our culture And therefore, it's important for us to understand how it was used in the Jewish culture at this time. Basically, to put it very, very simply, let's say you owed a huge debt. Let's say you um, had a debt you had to pay to society. There were many, many things, sins associated with debts. Forgive us our our debts as we forgive our debtors. Your Redeemer, 
usually your next of kin who makes surety for you. So um, I don't know if this still applies. In fact, our culture has gone kind of weird. Uh, uh, one of my family lost her phone. I'll not say which one. But <laughs> trying to claim on the insurance and uh, said, well, the, the phone is actually in my name. And it's really interesting because the insurance company are saying, ah, but it's in your name. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was your wife's phone or whatever. Um, or, uh, you know, there's lots and lots of, the insurance is in your wife's name and the phone is in your name. And I said, yeah, but we're one. The two are one. You know, do you never listen to the Spice Girls? You know, and she said, uh, no, 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 it's, you're separate. I said, no, no, we're one. And it's the same thing. And what's my wife's is mine and what's mine is my wife's. And at the end of the phone, you think, you can hear her going, what? who am I talking to? You know, I'm giving them a lecture on what marriage really, really is. Um, and our culture is so incredibly individualistic, individual, individualistic to that extent that you don't think, well, well, we owe it. You know, I grew up in a culture where if as a kid you broke a window, then your parents paid for it. You know, that's, it's your responsibility. They're your children. Well, in this culture, your kinsman redeemer was your next of kin who was surety for you. He was your guarantee. That's wonderful if you've got a lot of debt and your kinsman happens to be Bill Gates. I don't know, Brian Souter, the queen or something. You know, that's okay. Uh, my aunt will pay, my mum will pay or whatever. Um, but imagine in this context where we're said, God says, I am your redeemer. I am your kinsman. You've committed these incredible sins. And who's going to stand surety? I am. I think that's a wonderful picture. The next of kin who pledges to take every burden from you, which is why in the New Testament we are told, cast all your burdens on him because he cares for you. He gave us birth, James 1.18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And I love the idea here, which is that nothing will touch us except what fatherly love allows. I feel really sorry for Christians who do not get their theology right in this regard, because in order to make God appear nicer, they say, well, God is not in control of things. And God, you know, a nice person wouldn't let this happen, so God can But then you've got a God who can't prevent bad things happening to you. But here you've got a God who permits things to happen, but nothing that fatherly love would not allow. And in the midst of the greatest darkness, that's something for you to hold on. Why do I feel so rotten? Why did this happen to me? Why did that person die? Why did this bust up occur? Why am I under this kind of stress? And God comes along and he says, yeah, but I formed you and nothing will happen to you that I do not permit. And he goes on, I alone stretch out the earth. Now, uh, are you a monergist? Um, That's a good word to know. Monergism just simply means one. Everything comes from one, the one God. Now, you see, if you are a a Hindu or a Buddhist, you'd believe in the one. Everything is the one. But uh, as Christians, we don't believe that. We believe that God created everything. There is nothing animate or inanimate that does not come from him. Now, the only alternative to that logically is to believe 
that there's some kind of eternal matter. But God says, no, I made it all. I made it. Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And he's just simply saying that his continuing work as creator is the guarantee that he is in sole charge of everything, that in him we live and move and have our being. Whatever your circumstances, whatever the doubts and fears in your minds, whatever the pressures and stresses that you are under just now, you need to look to the God who is your redeemer and the maker of all things. And then he goes on, verse 25, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. Now here, what he's doing here is bringing up two ways that we know things. How do we know what we know? How do we know what's right and what's wrong? You will be aware, I think, that the Supreme Court of the United States, by five to four, voted that uh, same-sex marriage was a constitutional uh, right in the U.S. Constitution and so on. Uh, one of the most bizarre things you can ever, when you stop and think about it, because if you know who the framers of the U.S. Constitution were, uh, there's no doubt at all that same-sex marriage was so out of their universe, it wasn't remotely in there. But that's not really the issue. The issue is people go, well, these wise judges have decided... And you read, I'm daft enough to actually have read the 103-page judgment, and you read it, and you, you want to despair at the stupidity of the wise, um, is how I would uh, want to put it. But someone say, well, how do we know? How do you know anything at all? And there are two ways that are mentioned here. One is through some people called the Badim. I love them. I love that name. I think that should be in Lord of the Rings. Here come the Badim. Uh, and the Badim, it's a Hebrew word, it's talking about the false prophets. Isaiah 16, for example, we've heard of Moab's pride, her overweening pride and conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. These are, how would we put it, people who would claim to have the revelation of God, would claim to have signs from God, and would claim to know the future. I think in particular here, he's talking about um, fortune tellers who claim to know the future. We live in a culture where that's still there. How many people will read their horoscopes tomorrow? Um, how many people will go down to the Spiritist Church at the bottom of the road here? How many people will today think, well, do you know, God did tell ISIS to do what they've been doing. That's what they believe. How, how are we to know whether it's right or whether it's wrong? And then in the Christian church, we have got plenty of people who will stand up in a pulpit and go, thus says the Lord, this is what the Lord says. And then they'll say the opposite of what God says in his word. And then people go to people like me who try and teach what the Bible says. They say, yeah, well, how do you know? That's just opinion. It's just interpretation. And so people get very, very confused. God says he foils the signs of the false prophets and makes fools of diviners. We need have no fear as Christians of those who go against the word of God or teach contrary to the word of God. Why? 
Because it's God they're going against, not us. That's the whole point. But there's another way that we know, and that is um, maybe, maybe most people in our culture, maybe it's certainly the way our culture is run, the elites, uh, maybe you actually. You say, you don't need supernatural revelation. Why do you need supernatural revelation? You just need wisdom. You observe human conduct. You, you recall precedents. And this is exactly, by the way, what the judges were doing in uh, the United States Supreme Court. That they're looking at what's going on. And you'll notice this, by the way, that laws tend to follow where culture and opinion goes. It's, uh, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, they would never have made any kind of decision like this. It wasn't there before. It's not there now. They're just putting it in. Well, a lot of people say that's how we do things. We, we look at things. We study things. We test things. We observe things. And then we work it out. What does God say? He overturns the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. It's upside down wisdom compared with the wisdom of God. Trying to make sense of things. I wonder how many people who've not had a particularly brilliant education or, you know, not done all that well academically, I wonder how many of them really believe, oh, I just have to leave it to other people who are smarter than me to work it out because I can't work it out. And how in our culture there are those who say, well, you peasants keep quiet. You peasants, you don't know. that. Let's trust the wise. Let's trust the opinion formers. Let's trust the scholars. Let's trust our leaders. And God says, no, they're foolish. They're foolish. Here's why. They lack God's perspective. By definition, their wisdom cannot deal with situations that are unique. They look at something that's gone before and they go, okay. And they look at something and they go, okay, what they can see. And they try and work it out. But God sees all things and can bring new things and new situations. Our wisdom can only be based upon what we observe, upon empirical observation that we have. And let me put it this way. Just as I need glasses because my eyesight isn't perfect, I'm sorry, but your mind isn't that great, and your mind is distorted as well. So how do you know? How do you know what's right? How do you know? Just by observing. But what if God, he brings new things in. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And by the way, God is not saying, I like people to be stupid. He's asking people to use our minds. We're to be renewed through our minds. But he's saying we need to recognize the limitation of our minds. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. And again, notice how the sovereignty of God is there. It's in God's wisdom that he's allowed wise people in this world to say, ah, we don't believe in God, there's no God. He goes on to say, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 
And that's why in verse 26, it goes on to say, he carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. That's why, how will I put it this way? The simple crofter or farmer or workman or nurse or whatever who might look and say, well, I read you know, these court judgments and can't really make sense of them. But I know what God says in his word is wiser than the wisest judge because the judges are foolish in comparison with God. He carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. So if our first comfort is the character and nature of God in terms of being our redeemer, our kinsman redeemer, and in terms of being our maker, our second comfort is this, that the wisdom of God, that the foolishness of God rather, is smarter than the wisdom of men. I feel immensely sorry for those Christians who are tempted to go, you know, yeah, I used the Bible, yeah, I used to go with that, but the more I've learned from the wisdom of men, the more I think, oh, no, I don't know. We need to change the Bible. We need to do this. What's happening to you is not that you are becoming wise. You are becoming foolish. You are changing the wisdom and the glory of God for the foolishness of humanity. Third comfort then, and we go on, he says this, he says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towers of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. See, I think you could identify with Israel. I can identify with Israel anyway because they would have gone, we want deliverance. And God says, I'm sending you a conqueror, not a deliverer. Somebody who's going to make it worse. They say, we want restoration, homecoming, and rebuilding. And what does God say? God says, remember, remember? Remember what happened before? Uh, in this passage and in the whole of this chapter, there are references to the Exodus, and there's a specific one here. Be saying, remember what happened when you were in Egypt? God says, I'm going to bring you restoration, homecoming, and rebuilding, but I'm going to do it through Cyrus. It's interesting that um, how quickly we follow the ways of the world as well. We say, look, we need this in the church and that in the church and this strategy and that thing, and, and it's great, and, and we should look, and we should be wise, and we should be working out what to do. But at the end of the day, we bow before the sovereignty of God, and we say, Lord, we're praying for this. And that's, by the way, is why the prayer meeting is so important, because we can come with all the plans we want, but God's got his own plans. And we go and we pray, and we say, Lord, this is what we're looking for. And God says, I hear you. I am your Father. I made you. My word will stand. I'm going to give you what you want, but not in the way that you expected. How many of us go to God and say, Lord, I want this, and then we tell him how to do it? So, Lord, I I want a happy life. And by the way, that means I'm married, and that means I'm going to be married to her, so you better make it work. Um, That's not how it works. It's not how... If only I had that job, then I would be fulfilled. If only that debt was cleared, then it would be okay. And we have to come, and we have to seek God, and God says... I will bring it. 
but the way I will bring it. I, I think, I'm, I'm not sure that I've ever seen God work in anything that I haven't opened my mouth and go, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Not that way. I will build my church. That's really what this is saying. And he talks about the deep here. This is where the Exodus, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. God's ability to perform wonders because there were the Israelites escaping from Pharaoh. Theirs was Pharaoh and his army chasing them, and there they are before the Red Sea. How do, you, how do they get through? They're going to drown or they're going to be killed. And God opens up the Red Sea. And God is saying to the people, just remember, remember, I am the God who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. I, um, I thought about this so much, this phrase, the watery deep, that I, 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 wanted, I was almost going to do a series of three sermons just on that one thing, but I thought, well, A, I'm not Sinclair, and B, I'm not a Puritan. But it's just a great phrase. It's a great phrase. I will dry up the watery deep. Just think of the obstacles that are in your way. Just think of the things that stifle you, that squash you, that dry you up. Just think of the things that overwhelm you. And God says, I I will deal with all of that. I will deal with all of that. And it did happen. This prophecy about Cyrus and so on, it occurred. Ezra 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, by the way, two things extraordinary about that. One, what an extraordinary evidence for the prophecy of the Bible. So much so that some alleged Christian scholars go, oh, well, wait a minute, this predicted something that happened, so actually the prediction must have been made after it happened, so Isaiah couldn't have written this, and they write books and books in it, and I just want to go, I'm sorry, why are you so stupid? You know, honestly, why, why do you have to reinterpret everything? Here's the word of God, written at a particular time, written in the time of Isaiah, foretelling that Cyrus, the heathen king, would send the Jews back to Jerusalem, and far better than they could have gone if they'd gone with their own conqueror. And in, you read in the Ezra, it actually happened. But it happened by God calling my shepherd a heathen king. And I, in a strange kind of way, I find that not confusing, but encouraging. Harry gave us a tremendous uh, talk on Islam in Iran, and I hope you'll do it again sometime so that those of you who didn't hear it can hear it. And the phrase that stuck in my mind more than anything was that he talked about when the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power, the leaders of the church in Iran said he was the devil, and now they say he's a messenger of God. Why? Because millions of people have become Christians through the Ayatollah Khomeini. Because he, he, put, he took Islam, literally, and, he took, and lots of Muslims are going, wait a minute, we don't want this. Wait, that's not what we want. 
This is not what it's supposed to be about. But actually, if you read the Quran, it is what it's about. Khomeini was correct. And plenty of people have said, no, no, this can't be right. And they've been drawn towards Jesus Christ. I think it is. Uh, sometimes we may despair at the church. And I go back to Calvin. He says this. If therefore we think that God is true and powerful, let us not doubt that there will always be a church. And when it appears to be in a lamentably ruinous condition, let us entertain good hopes of its restoration. Let us rely on this promise that she shall at length be raised up and perfectly restored. God says he will build his church. Now, I think we need to re-get this, by the way. Because even though I think most of us intellectually in our heads understand this, I think practically and often in our hearts we don't get it. The church is not this building and the church is not the denomination. The church is the people of God. And the temple is not in Jerusalem. The temple is not wood and stone. What agreement, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.16, is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I've heard all kinds of comments about, oh, they'll take away tax-exempt status, and eventually we'll be banned from our buildings, and we won't be able to do this. And we'll be able to... You know, this, that's not the threat to the church. I'll tell you what the threat to the church is. People gather in buildings who don't know God. Or people who gather in buildings who become complacent and think, because I came to this building, when I go away from here, I've done my religious duty. And God says, no, you are the temple. You don't come to the temple and then go home and not be the temple. You are the temple wherever you go. When you're in Tesco's, you're the temple. When you're in the pub, you're the temple. When you're in the restaurant, you're in the temple. When you're at work tomorrow, you're the temple. And they can never take that from you. They can take money. They can take buildings. They can even take your life. But they cannot take me. That's why Christians should never despair at the external fortunes or rise or decline of the church overall. What we should be looking at is that we know the God who made it all and we serve him whatever the culture says. We will not bow the knee to Caesar, whoever Caesar is. We are temples built by the living word of God. We are here to give him worship. Calvin goes on to say, the Lord wishes there should be a church in the world that his name would not be forgotten. If the government forget his name, if the rulers forget his name, if the media forget his name, we will not forget his name, and his name will be proclaimed in this city, and his name will be proclaimed in this country. I get really, I'm sorry about this, but I get really wound up that I live in a country that I love so much. And it's a country that was once known as the land of the people of the book. And it was a country that sent missionaries all over the world. I've just been reading about William Chalmers Burns who went from this church to China and who gave his life to bring the gospel to China and saw so little fruit while he was in China. And today there are 100 million Chinese Christians partly because of his work. I'm so proud of my country in that regard. And so distressed at what's happening. And yet, I can't be overwhelmed by it because I'll just say this. 
no matter what the government does, no matter what the media do, we, no matter how many of us there are, we will proclaim the name of the Lord. And his name will be proclaimed in our land. The Lord wishes there should be a church in the world that his name would not be forgotten. And here's how it ends for me. In, in, if you go back, I'll go back, let's go back to the, to the maker. Who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. How, why is that important? Well, it's God's church. You go to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. God says, I did this by myself. There was nobody here when I made the world. But John says, yeah, but now we know there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. We sing it often, and I'm glad we do. Light of the world, you came down into darkness. Isn't it wonderful? If you're a Christian and you feel the darkness of the age, and if you're a Christian and you feel the darkness of your own soul, and you feel the darkness of what's around you, maybe you don't, maybe things are very light for you at this moment in time, and praise God for that. But if you do feel that, what you need to do is look away from your own circumstances and look to the one who is light. And when God says, I myself was in the beginning, Jesus is with him. And who did God send? He sent Jesus. And when you worship Jesus, and when you serve Jesus, and when you follow Jesus, that's the God of the universe. You know, I've come across something so many times, and it does surprise me, but it, I, it, it happens so often. And maybe this is you. You might be someone who says, you know, I can get God, because there has to be a creator. I can understand that. I can understand there being a, a, an almighty God. But I just don't get Jesus. Well, let me say this to you. You don't really get God if you don't get Jesus. Because God is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not some deistic force. Not some theistic being, if you like. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the Christian church, when we come and we worship Him, we come in the name of Jesus Christ. And we remember that as this evening, as we sit at his table and he gives us bread and wine and blesses us and feeds us through that, that the one who is at the head of the table is also the one who was standing at the Father's side as the whole universe was made out of nothing. And that's why God says to the Israelites, why are you worried about Cyrus? He's my servant. Why are you worried about the desert? Why are you worried about being in exile? Why are you worried about all these troubles? Why are you worried about your illness? Why are you worried about cancer? Why are you worried about death? Why are you worried about the governments of this world? Why are you worried about the culture? Why are you worried about what will happen tomorrow? Because I am the maker of all things, and I am your redeemer, and I love you, and you know it because I gave my son for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you again just for its sheer beauty and wonder. And we do come to you as people who are burdened in different ways. But we bless you that you are the one who takes our burdens. We thank you that you give us rest. 
we thank you that you are the all-powerful one. And we pray, our God, that as we uh, reflect on this, each with our own circumstances, that we would feel the sorrow, feel the pain, be aware of the darkness, but grant, O oh God, that we would see the light and know and love and serve you, knowing that he who is for us is far greater than those that are against us. Lord, may your blessing be upon each of your people here, and if anyone does not know you, grant that even this day they would come to you. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.